Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. In the year 1678, a man named John Bunyan wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress. And this book was destined to become one of the greatest books ever written in the English language. It was published and reprinted in colonial America in 1681, and it swept through the colonies. It was the most popular book in households in America other than the Bible itself, and it had a profound impact on Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Paine and others who were founding fathers of our country. It tells the story of Christian, the main character, and his pilgrimage through many perils to try to reach the celestial city. And I want us this morning to reflect a little bit on the word pilgrim and the concept of pilgrimage, because it's a word that is part of our heritage as Christians and one that we don't think about often enough today. The word pilgrim comes from a Greek and Latin word that literally means traveler, one who has come from afar, who is usually on a journey to a holy place. Typically, this is a physically, physical journey on foot to a place of special significance um, or religious devotion. And it's interesting, when you look in much of the history of our country, this concept of pilgrimage is not just implicit, but explicit. If you read John Winthrop's City on a Hill about the Massachusetts Bay Colony, this idea of pilgrimage is right in the forefront of it, of being a city on a hill. But closer to home, if you look in the Fundamental Constitutions of Carolina, written by Anthony Ashley Cooper and his secretary, John Locke, you will see that these documents, which were written to help recruit settlers, are characterized by a very high view of a place of refuge, of being a place of being able to practice unfettered one's faith. And it was interesting that these documents in the 1680s were translated into French and German to help attract persecuted Protestants of all stripes across Europe to have them come to Carolina where they could practice their faith a pilgrimage that required people to literally leave behind everything, their status, their possessions, and their families, to make a new start trusting in God in this new land. So today, particularly on the 4th of July, it is an appropriate day to reflect on three questions. First, what is a pilgrimage, and what is most particularly the pilgrimage of faith? Second, how does Mark in his gospel describe the role of faith and the examples from last week's gospel and this week's gospel. And what can we learn from these examples in Mark's gospel as we seek to walk as faithful pilgrims today? So first of all, what is the pilgrimage of faith? Pilgrimage is a word that I think is often misunderstood by people, um, and some people have sort of gotten the idea that it means religious tourism. But that is, that is not what a pilgrimage is. In the spiritual literature of Christianity, going back to the earliest days of the church, the concept of pilgrimage has a double meaning. The first is the experience of life in this world that is not our true country and is not our true home. 
that we are pilgrims, that we are exiles and wanderers in this country. But it is also the inner path of faith from a state of sin and wretchedness. That's a good old-fashioned word that we don't like to use to describe ourselves. But uh, throughout history, Christians have understood themselves as wretched sinners. Wretched sinners. And the pilgrimage is from that state of wretchedness by the grace of Jesus Christ to a state of blessing and salvation in relationship with him. But in both these cases, the pilgrimage is not just about the destination, but it is about the journey. It is about the journey through which the Holy Spirit works on us to mold us into the image of Christ. When we look at the literature, particularly of the church fathers in the early centuries of the church, this whole idea of pilgrim and pilgrimage is all over the place. And it is interesting because it reminds us that we are temporary residents of this world, that our true home is that celestial city, that true home is heaven, that heavenly country, and we must live and behave every day according to the laws and the word of God and the standards of that true homeland that awaits us. This is described beautifully in Hebrews 11, that great chapter of faith, with these words. All of these died in faith without having received the promises, but from a distance they saw and greeted them. They confessed that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth, for people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land that they left behind, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Indeed, he has prepared a city for them. So that brings us to the second question. How does Mark describe the role of faith, the pilgrimage of faith, and the examples from last week's gospel and this week's gospel? Now, don't worry if you forgot what last week's gospel was. Um, there's no test that I'm going to be giving you this morning. But I want you to just um, think about there are two famous stories at the end of last week's gospel that flow right into the beginning of this week's. And those chapter and verse distinctions that we have were not part of the original manuscript. And so it's important that we see the juxtaposition here because these stories are in this order for a reason. So in the chapter 5, last week's gospel, we see the story of the healing of the woman of, with the issue of blood. We also see the story of the healing of Jairus's daughter, the synagogue ruler whose daughter dies and is brought back to life. And then today we have the story of the faith, or lack thereof, of the people in the synagogue in Jesus's hometown. So just to review from Mark 5, the story of the woman with the issue of blood. This woman has had this condition for 20 years, and in it she became unclean in the eyes of the law, as Justin told us about last week. And one of the remarkable things is what this woman did, because in the eyes of the law she was forbidden because of her uncleanness from going out she was not allowed to touch anyone, and anyone and anything that she touched became unclean as well. And yet this woman, because she has heard about Jesus when she knows that he is coming, she boldly 
breaks the law. She goes out and she goes out to touch Jesus because she knows through her faith that in him there is healing. And she has several strikes against her. The Pharisees, every day in this period, woke up and prayed a prayer that said, Oh God, I thank thee that I'm not a Gentile or a woman. It was not a woman-friendly sort of place. And second, she is unclean. She's forbidden to go out and especially to touch people, and most especially not to touch a rabbi, a holy man. And yet she takes the risk to do that. It is a great reminder of this story that Jesus loves everyone, even though society and the religious people reject. And she falls at Jesus' feet. It is a remarkable thing. And because of her faith, she is made well. She risks everything. She risks being arrested, being made a public example of, but her faith impels her to do this. And much in the same way the story of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. You will remember, if you've read the Gospels, that Jesus' chief enemies on this earth were not the sinners, but the religious people. And the Pharisees had had it with Jesus. Just a little bit earlier in Mark, Jesus had healed a man in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And listen to what is the result of that. This is from Mark 3. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against Jesus as to how they might put him to death. So for Jairus, who was a synagogue leader and likely a Pharisee, to publicly ask Jesus for help and to fall on his knees before him is throwing away his career, his reputation, all the things that he has worked so hard for. And lest you misunderstand this, when you read the Gospels, you see people falling at Jesus' feet all the time. That is not normal. In this culture, people did not do that. A man, particularly, would never fall at the feet of another man. It is an example of extreme humility, like prostrating yourself on the floor in front of someone. So Jairus takes this huge risk, and imagine what he's thinking as he stepped down in his faith to ask Jesus to heal his daughter who's deathly ill right on the brink of death, and then Jesus stops instead of going to Jairus' house and deals with this woman with the issue of blood, this unclean woman that Jairus had been taught all his life to look down upon. Imagine how angry he must have been, and yet Jesus looks at him when his daughter, when they come and tell him his daughter has died, and tells him not to be afraid to have faith and to believe. And of course, Jesus goes on to his house where they make fun of Jesus and say, the girl is dead. And Jesus goes in with his disciples and the parents and says, Talitha kum, and the little girl gets up and she is brought back to life. Two amazing examples of people taking huge risks, stepping out on their faith to follow Jesus. And then we get to what should be the climax Jesus coming to his hometown, the synagogue where he grew up, to his family, to his own people, where you've been built up through this gospel to expect there would be a triumph of faith and teaching and healing would break out. And what we see, in fact, is the exact opposite. We see, rather than faith, not just doubt, but unbelief. We see the Nazarenes grumbling and murmuring about Jesus even while he is in front of them in the synagogue teaching. 
they take offense at him. And they say some things that are very offensive in themselves. They say, is not this the carpenter? And then even worse, and this is easy to miss, they say, is this not the son of Mary? And typically in this time, if you were called son of someone, it was always the father. So it should have been son of Joseph. And the son of Mary is a pretty strong um, insinuation that Jesus is illegitimate. It is very insulting. And so here these people are, when Jesus is preaching to them, being insulted. They most certainly are not falling at his feet in faith. And it says in the gospel that they take offense at him, that he is offensive to them, and their unbelief is so strong that he could do no miracle there. There is no faith. Jesus doesn't force miracles on people. People have to come to him in faith. And it's interesting, the word that's used here, their unbelief is so bad that Jesus marveled. And that word means he was amazed, he was stunned, he was blown away by their unbelief. And it's interesting because usually when you see that word in the gospel, it's because the crowds are amazed and marveling at who Jesus is and what he's done. And here the tables are turned 180 degrees and Jesus is marveling because of their unbelief. Listen to how Sinclair Ferguson describes this moment. Jesus is amazed at their lack of faith. This is the only occasion Mark records such a reaction to unbelief. The people of Nazareth enjoyed so many advantages. The Son of God had lived among them in childhood. He had preached to them with power. He had carried out some miracles. It seems likely he had even returned to them after an earlier rejection. But they were blind to his identity, deaf to his message, and hardened their hearts against him. Mark does not record any further visits to Nazareth. Perhaps there were none. Even what they had was taken from them. Let us learn from their sad example. Unbelief is a strong word. It's a determined refusal to believe. Doubt, on the other hand, is a struggle faced by the believer. Unbelief is a condition of an unbeliever. It says, I hear what you're saying, and I choose not to believe it. I reject what you are saying altogether. They take offense. John Calvin comments, it is not mere ignorance that hinders men, but that of their own accord, they search after grounds of offense to prevent them from following the path to which God invites. People do not fail to believe Christ because of lack of information, but because their hearts are hard. The Lord must awaken the hearts of unbelievers, or they will not be converted. So the third question this morning, what can we learn from these three examples about how we can walk as faithful pilgrims today? So the first thing is knowing which examples to follow. And that means we should be all about following the example of the woman with the issue of blood and the example of Jairus. These are people whose faith was the first thing in their heart and their mind. They were willing to disturb themselves, to get out of their comfort zone, to be embarrassed, and to take a risk for their faith. 
They pursue Jesus actively. They don't just sit there and wait, uh, but they go out, and they go out in ways that are public, that are not hidden, and where they are unashamed, begging, making their need known to Jesus and all the people that are around them. They are standing up. They are standing up. They are not sitting back in comfort and being distracted and missing what Jesus is doing. They are standing up. And the other thing that they are doing is that they are following Jesus. They stand up and they follow him. They are unashamed. My friends, there are many lessons for us in that. We live in a culture where we can be so distracted and we feel sometimes that we're in the minority with our faith and we hide our faith and we refuse to act in faith when Christ calls us to to stand up. But Jesus calls us to be like this woman with the issue of blood, to be like Jairus, to risk our reputation, to go in humility and beg for Jesus because it is only through Jesus that we have any hope to get to that heavenly country that is the goal of our pilgrimage. The second thing that we can learn from these examples is to avoid the sin of the Nazarenes. We are to listen to and to trust Jesus. We are not to take offense. We are not to let our low expectations and our unbelief rob God of the power to act in our lives. We are to expect and be expectant like these people like Jairus and the woman with the issue of blood who expected Jesus to do something because they knew he had the power to change their lives and nothing else mattered compared to that. We must resist the temptation to explain away or become offended by God's work. When we see God's work in some way that we think is uncomfortable or makes us uneasy, it is easy to look down on it. It is easy for us to become offended when our comfort gets in the way of the word of God. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand about this, but think about how many times you've complained about a sermon that was too long. And I will be the first to admit I would raise my hand too. Sometimes they're even mine. So, but it is a reminder that in these times we should be looking for the word of God. We should not be thinking about what's comfortable for us or what time our lunch reservation is. We should be listening for the Holy Spirit. We also need to make sure to not do what the Nazarenes did, which was to try to force God into the box of our own expectations. That they wanted to limit God, they wanted to limit Jesus and say, this guy is not capable of anything. And my friends, how often do we find ourselves consciously or subconsciously thinking that our problem or our situation is too big for Jesus to handle? But the lesson of these examples is that there's nothing that is too big for Jesus to handle. We also can learn from the example of the Nazarenes not to let comfort and familiarity breed contempt. It is all too easy, especially when we are church people, to get used to the Word of God, to get used to the idea of the church and the gospel, and to just think it's something we do on Sundays, we do once a week, because that's what good people do, just kind of like you go to the grocery store once a week. We lose the perspective that Jesus' gospel 
is the most important world-changing thing that has ever happened in history. It is not something to be taken for granted. The other thing that is so important is that we learn to pray for discernment. The Nazarenes didn't pray for discernment, they just rushed to judgment. But we need to pray for discernment, we need to pray for our own faith, the faith of our church, the faith of our country, the faith of our leaders, because how can we expect God to act when there is no faith in his people? Lastly, we must follow Jesus' example and understand what it means to live life on pilgrimage. One of my besetting sins, and I think one of the besetting sins of our culture, is that we love our comforts. We love to be comfortable. We love to be surrounded with the things that are familiar. But Jesus gave us the greatest example of pilgrimage in his own incarnation, where he is seated at the right hand of God in majesty and splendor in the heavens, and he chooses to empty himself, as St. Paul says, of all of that, and to be born on this earth as a helpless baby, like the baby we're getting ready to baptize this morning, a helpless baby in a manger in the backwater province of Judea. This incarnation leads to Jesus' life where he never really has a home, he's itinerant, and he is calling his disciples to live like him. When Jesus goes to each of his disciples to call them, he always says the same two words. What are the two words Jesus says when he calls a disciple? Yes, follow me. And he doesn't say, follow me after you've sold your house and your business and harvested your crops and said goodbye to everyone. He calls people to follow him on to pilgrimage to leave everything behind, just as the people did who came to this country because of their faith. They are called to leave everything behind, to follow Jesus, to be with him, to sit at his feet, to hear his word, and to act in faith upon it. They are called to walk by faith, not by sight, keeping their eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter, and indeed the pilgrim of faith. So we are to follow Jesus' example. We are to be on pilgrimage. We are to be looking to where he may be calling us to go, to follow after him, and to receive the joy and the fullness of the healing that he wants to bring us. Jesus brings new life. He redeems. He restores. He reconciles. All of these rewords. He breathes new life into everything. And when we are on pilgrimage with him, we experience that. I want to commend to you a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction by a man named Eugene Peterson. And I would love to read you the whole thing this morning, but that would make me guilty of a really long sermon. Uh, but I commend it to you because he talks about setting our direction like a pilgrim, knowing where you're heading for and then living in faith and long obedience toward that. Let me close this morning with the words of a hymn that we will sing later on from John Bunyan. Listen to these words. He who would valiant be against all disaster, let him in constancy follow the master. There's no discouragement to make him once relent his first avowed intent to be a pilgrim. Let us pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a Lord with a pilgrim heart who set the example of pilgrimage in your incarnation, 
and called us to be people who are on pilgrimage, seeking after you with all of our hearts. Lord, help us not to be like the Nazarenes, to take offense and to be full of unbelief, but help us to be like the woman and like Jairus, willing to risk everything because of our faith in you, a costly faith, but a faith that is worth any price we could pay. We thank you for your promise to send your Holy Spirit to guide us and to bring us at that last day to your celestial city, where with all the saints we will gather around your throne and praise your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.